Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, welcome to Bergen Park Church. We're glad you're with us this morning. I got to make a confession. My heart's running probably 150 beats right now. Because the passage we're going to go into, I'll tell you, it's challenging. You know, the book of Revelation is hard. It's an unveiling. Really, the book of Revelation is less about what's coming, though it, it talks about what's coming in Christ's return. That the new Jerusalem is going to come out of heaven. The presence of God is going to come down. I don't know if you realize this, you know, that heaven is going to be the new creation. It's the new heavens and the new earth. That when Christ returns, his presence is going to come. And see, when his presence covers, covers the world and covers us like the waters cover the sea, there's healing. In God's presence, there's restoration, there's healing. And when God's presence comes down and covers all the world, there's going to be no more sin, sadness, crying, or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. And behold, God's made all things new. And that's what, that's what we await, is Christ's return. But see, we live in this intermediate state, this place where Christ has come and Christ is coming back, but we're rubbing up against the culture of the day, the spirit of the day. The spirit of that day kind of comes into the church. It can infect us as Christians and how we follow God. And so we come to the book of Revelation and what it is, it's, it's an unveiling. It's, it's, it's God kind of pulling back the curtains and showing us what he's up to in the world. Because see, often as we face challenges in life, we don't know what's behind it. Is this simply the brokenness of life because life is broken and so suffering comes in? Is this the direct attack of the evil one? Sometimes Jesus will say, you know, what's really happening is Satan's at work in your city. And often we don't know because we don't have that unveiling. But what we do have as we celebrate this Sunday on Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit. You have the spirit of the living God at work within you. You are an adopted child of God. You're not an orphan. You're not a slave. You're not cast off. Rather, God dwells in you. And we have, to, we have to submit to that spirit. And the way we do that is, one, we have to submit to God's truth. Sometimes the way that God describes things may be not congruent with the way we see the world. And often what we're doing with God, I don't know if you know this, I do it. I project onto God the qualities I really like and the qualities I don't like about God, I don't talk about and that's why we come to passages like this in the book of Revelation because it describes a picture of the fullness of who God is. God is merciful. God is good. And we sing songs like that. We talk about the reckless love of God, but do we ever sing about the wrath of God? Not very often. There's not many songs about the discipline of God. But see, if we don't hold the love of God alongside the wrath of God, then we've got a false God. And we come to passages like this, we're going to pick it up in, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, and it's going to describe the loving discipline of God, that God disciplines his children. Now, a few, um, a couple disclaimers about this passage, and many of you probably don't carry these theological problems with you, but as a pastor, has been around for a little while, I've heard this passage taught in different ways, and it really bugs me. And so I got to le- le- kind of let you in on some disclaimers about this passage. Now, first of all, these are hard words. They're not my words. They're Jesus' words. But realize they're Jesus' words to his church whom he loves. 
And because he loves the church, he's willing to say hard things to us. So receive these words as the words of Jesus himself. And second, if you're not a believer, these words aren't for you. They're not directed at you. Because often this passage, and as we read it, maybe it'll kind of strike some memories in you. It's often used and applied and directed towards the unbelieving world. But see, these are words of grace for God's church. And often the church uses words of grace to condemn people outside the church. It's really sad. And so words that God has given us to draw us back to himself, we will use to judge others. And so that's not what this is about. These are words to us. It's not to the unbelieving world. And then third, this is not a word about women. Heard this passage applied that way. It's not a direct statement, a general statement towards women in general. No, it's talking about a spirit. We're going to look at the spirit of Jezebel. And it's a spirit that can, in fact, and maybe this truly was a woman that was in this church that was leading astray, but it also is a spirit that just as well can affect men, that become controlling, authoritative, manipulative, and in the process, they draw people's hearts away from God, and they draw them towards themselves. So this is not a general statement against women. So who is Jesus addressing? What he's addressing in this passage is the unrepentant heart. The heart just just says to God, listen, God, I don't care. I know you've convicted me. And you know when the Holy Spirit comes and you start feeling that and you just resist and resist and resist, eventually it turns off. You will shut the Spirit of God out in your life. When conviction comes upon you, if you're in a church service or you're listening to something and you feel conviction, you need to grab hold of that. That's a gift from God. You're not just creating that moment. No, God is speaking to you. And in humility, we want to respond to that spirit that's in us, that's crying out, Abba, Father, and say, hey, there's something not right in my life, and I want to get in line with where God is. This is a word towards the unrepentant heart, but it's a warning towards us that struggle with sin, that struggle with a culture that promotes certain aspects, certain ideas around money or sex or politics or whatever it is, and we just kind of sit in it. We, we allow ourselves to go along with it. This is a warning towards just sitting in sin and allowing sin to wash over us to the extent that it changes our view of God. So is that a big enough introduction? <laughs> You're like, what is he talking about? I don't know. <laughs> oh, my nervousness is coming out. We're going to jump into Revelation chapter uh, 2, verse 18, the letter to the church in Thyatira. So you guys ready? I think you got it. I think we got it. That's enough. Let's do this. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like flaming fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works. I know your love. I know your faithfulness. I know your service. I know your patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. But we got a problem. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, I have given her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. 
But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only, only, only hold fast to what you have until I come. Hold fast. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father in heaven, and I will give him the morning star. Now he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I'd ask in in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, our God, our Lord, and by the power of the Spirit that dwells within us, give us ears to hear. Calm my spirit, Lord. Give me focus and attention on your words. And Spirit, would you go out to this room as, as you fell on the early disciples in tongues of fire, let fire dwells within us, but we have allowed it to go cold, to, sometimes to grow cold. We've grieved the Holy Spirit by ignoring you and ignoring you and ignoring you and allowing sin and brokenness in our life that we do not address. Father, may your kindness, your kindness this morning lead us to a place of repentance, trust and faith. Teach us, Father, we'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So these are heavy words, strong words. The church in Thyatira, you don't know a lot about the city of Thyatira. Actually, I don't know how to pronounce the name of the city that it's in in Turkey. It still exists today, but the archaeological dig around the city is really tiny. It's like maybe a city block. So it was a pretty insignificant city at that time compared to the other ones we looked at. We looked at Ephesus, Sardis, Pergamum. Thyatira is a small city. All we really have that we know about them are their coins, And so a lot of the information that we know about the city comes from that. And see, every one of these letters has very specific cultural references. You know, to the church in Ephesus, he says, I walk among the seven golden lampstands. To other churches, he says, I have a sword that's coming out of my mouth, a double-edged sword. Here he calls himself, did you notice? The Son of God. It's the only time he uses that. Now, why? Because in Thyatira, on their coins, they worshipped the son of Apollos, and Apollos was this, this god of the sun, the deep world. That's why you see the deep things of Satan. They think that's what that reference is. It's kind of a strange phrase. It's hard to understand exactly. But it could be oracles that Apollos was giving out the son of Apollos. But see, also on their coins was not only the son of Apollos, it was the emperor. And the emperor was called the son of God. And Jesus is just establishing his authority out the gate. Hey, I'm the son of God. Okay. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then he goes into this language. You see it throughout. You talk about potters. You know, he talks about pieces of pottery. It's like, what's that got to do? Bronze, burnished bronze. My eyes are like fire. I've got the rod and the staff. See, Thyatira was known for its trade guilds. If you were a mason, a carpenter, if you were a bronze worker, burnished bronze was actually the, the early mirrors of that day. They didn't have glass. And so burnished bronze had a reflective quality, and it was the number one export. And so when he says, my feet are like burnished bronze, he goes, listen, guys, I get you. I'm a part of your culture. I know what you're about. And in each one of these guilds, these craftsmanship, this skill, you would worship a specific god, right? And so if you're a carpenter, you worship the carpenter god, not the carpenters, but the carpenter god, right? And if you're a mason, you worship the mason gods. And if you're a leather worker, you had the leather working gods. And see, if you didn't honor the gods, then all the other craftsmen around you would get nervous, right? Because the gods are going to punish us. Jason, why don't you get along with the mason god, right? 
Because the economy of our skill is dependent on all of us together worshiping, sacrificing to this God. And often it involves sexual immorality. So after a hard day of work, you'd offer a sacrifice, you would have sex to the God, and then that would be the end of your day. Okay, it sounds like a great day. That was pagan life in that city, worshiping the sons of God. And Jesus is saying, I have authority. These gods don't have authority. The emperor doesn't have authority. I have authority. And so he introduces himself in a way that's trying to get the attention of this city. Guys, I know what has a hold of your heart. I know what you're afraid of. I know what you're worried about. I know where you're looking to for authority, but it's in me. It's in me. And what he goes on to do is he starts off by commending them. Notice this in verse 19. There's a lot of great things about this church. He says, I know your works. Then he goes on to enumerate. What are those works? You're a loving church. They loved one another well. Verse 19 they were faithful. I love your, your love, your faithful service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your former, meaning they're growing. So the ministry they had in the beginning as a church was good. Now it's great. And so this is a church that is thriving in love. This would be the kind of church that really cares well for themselves, right? Like if you're sick, they got food. You have a child, they're bringing stuff over. You're not well, they're caring for you, they're praying over you. This is a church that really cared for this community because it was a blue-collar community. This is back in the day, the Detroit of the time. This is the Philadelphia. This is where stuff gets built and stuff gets done. And this blue-collar city really served and cared well for each other. And he says, listen, I love this about you. You guys do a good job at community. That's a good church to be a part of. But then he goes, but... Have you ever been praying and God's like, but? You're in scripture and God says, but? Now, you gotta be really careful at that moment. How am I gonna receive this, right? Am I gonna get defensive? No, you wanna, you wanna receive it by the spirit that's in you and say, okay, Father, teach me. May I be humble. So he's gonna say, but. And there's a big but here. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing. So this is a seductive teaching. It's a, a teaching that draws you in and you think it's good at first, but then it takes you someplace you didn't intend to go. And where does it take them? Into practicing sexual morality, which was a part of the culture. Remember, that's, that's where you were. You now came to Christ. She's taking you back into the culture. Hey, these things are Okay. And food sacrifice to idols. See, in a lot of these letters, there are these false teachers that rise up. Last week, we looked at the Nicolaitans. Not exactly sure what they taught, but they taught uh, in the church in Pergamum. They led people astray. Now, here comes an individual. Now, we think this is a woman. It could be a man. It, it could be. We're not quite certain. But she's walking or he's walking in this spirit of Jezebel. Now, that is a theological memory to the people of Israel. To you, it's like Jezebel. I just know you don't call your daughter that, right? You don't name your daughter Jezebel, but I don't know anything about her. Well, Jezebel was an incredibly, incredibly strong woman. Ahab, king of Israel, marries Jezebel for political alliance, right? Just like they used to do. I want to bring this person into my house, bring Jezebel in, but Jezebel, when she showed up, she was an incredibly strong woman, and he, Ahab, was an incredibly weak man. And she was the neck of that head, I mean, she would turn Ahab wherever she wanted him to go. And with her, what she brought was the worship of false gods. 
And Ahab's like, oh, okay. He just kind of goes along with her. And he's, and he's telling us we need to watch out for this, this spirit. And there's a few problems that he notes. First of all, you tolerate her. You know, when Adam and Eve in the garden, they should have just kicked that serpent out. They shouldn't have tolerated the voice of the serpent. It's the same idea. What are you tolerating? What voices are you tolerating in your life? You start tolerating that voice, eventually it's going to sound, start sounding good. You're going to start accepting it. What are the things right now that you just kind of tolerate? Hey, it's not a big deal. He starts tolerating Jezebel, and Jezebel starts getting a hold. Starts getting a hold, and you see it in verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate her. You're listening to her. You're allowing her to have influence, influence in your life. So notice this. Here's what happens to Ahab. This, is, this story is in 1 Kings 16. You see it in 2 Kings chapter 9. Uh, here's, here's 1 Kings 16, verse 30. And it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than those who were before him. So this is one of the worst kings in Israel. And if it had been a like thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, which was a former king, the son of Nebat, he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of this king of the Sidons, and went and served the Baals and worshipped them. So he allows this message into his life and it starts drawing him away from God and slowly starts drawing him towards the worship of false gods. He tolerates her. That's where it starts. It's no big deal. But it starts to change the way that he views God. First thing that happens is he tolerates her and then he accepts her authority. Because notice in verse 20, she just calls herself a prophetess. We don't know who she is. Where does that authority come from? Ever met somebody like that? They just show up and say, hey, I'm the authority. And I'm like, okay. She just walks in this tremendous authority. Now realize, she was effective. This spirit is effective in its authority. Elijah was a pretty, pretty strong man of God. I mean, there was this moment where he kind of, he has this showdown with the prophets of Baal, and they set up this wood, right? They set up these altars, and Elijah starts just taunting the prophets of Baal. Because they're calling out to their God and nothing's happening. He's saying, listen, maybe he's in the toilet. Maybe he's indisposed. He's just kind of making fun of them. And then, then Elijah calls down to, to Yahweh and God brings fire down and he actually punishes the prophets of Baal. And then you know who shows up right after that, right after this great success? The literal Jezebel, the real one, she shows up. And Elijah, this man of God who just saw this tremendous movement of God, he is terrified of this woman. Because she walks in this convincing authority and it had this influence. There is a charismatic spirit. There is, there is a competence. There is a, a wisdom even in her at times. But there's darkness that wants to use you, not to love you. And Elijah, this man of God, is just totally taken back. And, and he, he despairs of life. I mean, he's like, God, kill me. God says, no, I, listen, bro, you just need a nap. Go read the story. I'm, I'm not kidding. Just here, here's some food. <laughs> Have a nap. And then he gets up and he's like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. But she had an authority. And that authority was effective. So they tolerated. They didn't question her authority. And it led to a theological problem. Notice this again, verse 20. You tolerate that woman who calls herself a prophetess. And she's teaching and she's seducing. Seduction is subtle. 
It's not direct. And they start drawing them away back into the stuff, into the culture that they just walked away from. And they're finding themselves being tempted once again by the idolatry of the culture, by the sexual impurity of the culture. And it leads, this theological problem leads to a moral problem. They're practicing sexual immorality, eating foods, food sacrificed to idols. This church, their heart is slowly being drawn away. You know, and that slow draw, it's, it is slow. You don't realize it at first that your heart's growing cold. But slowly and over time, as your heart grows cold, as your mind starts giving over to this false teaching, this false theology, your behavior starts to follow. And you know what comes with that? and you can check yourself on this, is exhaustion. You know you're under the influence of a false prophet, a false teacher, because you're exhausted. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus tends to lead to peace. Now, that doesn't mean that life is gonna be simple and easy, but there is a peace with God. When you're under a false teaching, you're always trying to live up to it. You're, you're never measuring up, you know, because see, a false spirit always comes with criticism. <laughs> I mean, it'll tell you, it'll give you a message of hope, but with that message of hope, once you compromise, it just puts all this shame on your life and it starts to enslave you and hold you down. You know, John Tyson, the pastor of this church in New York City, he talked about this passage and he said, he said this, and I quote, when the church looks like the world, you have a sick church. When the church acts like the world, you have an impotent church. When the church plays with the world, you have an unfaithful church. See, this is the root of what's happening here. Her teaching is leading people away from a covenant relationship with God. God has loved these people. And slowly over time, the influence of her teaching has started to lead them astray. See, how does this happen? How does this spirit come into the church? And here's what I'd suggest. It comes in through fear. Fear is powerful. There's a reason why there's fear behind politics, right? Because it works. You know, when your life is out of control and things are going a certain way and there's things you value and you start seeing them threatened, you're afraid. And you should be. Fear is natural in a sense. When you see something you value threatened, you should be a little afraid because it moves you to action. And when you're afraid, what you start doing is you start listening to voices of comfort. Can we be honest about that? Hey, this stuff's getting threatened. This stuff is in danger. And this message of fear and this, I'm out of control. And what do you do? Well, what do you want when you're afraid? I want comfort. Tell me everything's gonna be all right. Tell me who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. Make it clear. And this spirit, this spirit of Jezebel comes in, right? And what does she offer? Hope and comfort. You know, she's not gonna just come in and say, hate Jesus. I mean, that's just too easy, right? You're gonna spot that. No, she's going to offer a message of hope and comfort. And there's going to be enough truth in there that it sounds, uh, it sounds right. You know what I mean? It's seductive. It looks good. It's tempting. And then what happens is you start giving in to that message. And see, as you start giving in, you have to start compromising. Because see, it's not a message from God. It's a message from the world. It has enough of God to make you think it's from him. But there's a spirit of ma manipulation under that. And once you give them that message of hope, you start compromising morally. And with compromise comes compartmentalization. You know what I mean? 
hey, God doesn't care about that. He hasn't struck me dead. Still successful in my business. My wife still loves me. My husband still loves me. Things are still working. Body's still going. He must be okay. And you start compartmentalizing. And what happens, and specifically in this circumstance, what they compartmentalized was really their work. Hey, because I'm devoted to this guild, to being a craftsman, I've got to, I've got to kind of, I've got to, I've got to compromise. I've got to, I've, I won't be successful if I'm not a part of this guild. And this guild was more than just the labor unit. It's like a fraternity. And I'm going to have to give myself over and make some immoral decisions to keep my business going. And as you start to compromise and compartmentalize, you know what's coming next? Criticism. False prophets always are going to condemn you once you hold on to that message. That's what Satan does. Tempts you into sin, and then he says, look what you did. You can't, you can't be honest now. And what happens? You, you stop being honest with people, right? Because he's got you. He's got you dead to rights. You're walking in guilt. You're walking in shame. And that p- pattern just continues. And eventually, what happens long enough, you compartmentalize, you compromise. He starts criticizing you. That spirit starts criticizing you. And you find yourself, you're under the spirit of Jezebel. You're enslaved. And it just started with this little toleration. And over time, it just started to seductively pull you away. Have you ever seen that happen? It happens in culture. happens with leaders, but it happens in the church. And what happens is you conflate these false messages with God. And it starts causing you to see God in a way that he, he's not revealed himself that way. It's dangerous. It's seductive. And so what Jesus is going to do because he loves his, his church is he's going to discipline his church. And again, his words are harsh, but I want to talk just for a moment about the discipline of God. Because again, we sing about the love of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God. We don't sing about the wrath of God, the discipline of God, and yet it is full in the scriptures that God disciplines his children that he loves. So in verse 21, what happens is he says, okay, hey, I love this about you, but here's what I'm gonna do. Here's how I'm gonna respond, verse 21. And notice, I gave her time. Now, who are we talking about? This spirit that's leading people astray, that's, that's teaching false doctrines. It's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. And even towards this spirit, this teacher, this person, God is patient. He doesn't want to come down and just condemn. No, he, he woos her. He loves her. He wants to lead her to repentance. Notice, but she refuses. She refuses to acknowledge that which I'm saying is destroying your life. You know, God, even in that moment of discipline and wrath, it's, it's an exercise of love. You know, sometimes God has to shame you to wake you up. Do you know that? You ever hear Jesus say, you brood of vipers? Do you know that was loving? Because wicked people will not admit what they're doing is wicked. See, the average everyday sinner, when you, you get convicted, right? Hopefully, we're a lot of average everyday sinners in here. And when the Spirit of God comes, you're like, oh, man, I feel that. But see, when you walk in toleration long enough, sometimes God's got to shame you out of it. Hey, wake up. You are a brood of viper. You are dangerous. And that's what Jesus did to the Pharisees. He used shame to try to wake them up. But the purpose of that was to lead them to a place of repentance. You know, and so God's discipline is patient, but listen, it's loving, it's loving. God's discipline is loving. Verse 22, behold, I'll throw her into a sickbed. And those who committed, this is the key word, adultery with her, 
I'll throw them into great tribulation. I'll allow suffering and brokenness to come into life unless they repent. That word adultery is so important because it shows us God's, God's heart towards the church. And James captures on this because he says to the church, he says, you adulterous people. Now, what's that mean? You should be devoted to your covenant God. But instead, you're chasing after the world. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason the Spirit he caused to live in us, the Holy Spirit? It envies. I'm not sharing my wife with you. I'm not sharing my husband with you. God said, I'm not sharing my church with any other false God. I love my church. And see, Jesus' heart is so passionate for us that when we start chasing after stuff, hey, hey listen, he's not gonna allow you to run towards that. His discipline is there to draw you back because his discipline is loving. It's loving. Michael Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, helped me to see this. I'm gonna quote from this book. He says this, the wrath of the triune God is exactly the opposite of a character blip or simply a nasty side of him. It is the proof of the sincerity of his love. He truly cares. That's why he's disciplining his love is not mild manner or limp, it's, it's livid, it's potent, it's committed. And therein lies our hope that through his wrath, the living God shows that he truly loves us. And through his wrath, he will destroy all devilry that we might enjoy him in a purified world, the home of righteousness. God is passionate for your heart. That's why he says, I am the one who searches, you remember that? The hearts and the mind, he is passionate for you. His discipline it is patient, it is loving, but listen, if you do not heed it, it is final. It's final. That's where he's saying, I will strike her children dead. This is referring to spiritual children. Now, literally in the Old Testament, that's what happened. Jezebel led the nation, she led her family into destruction. Now, that wasn't by God's doing, that was by her decision to ignore the truth and to go down a path that leads to destruction. But Jesus is saying for those that spiritually give themselves over to this, it's, it's not gonna work out well, guys. Listen, it's not going to work out well. It's not as if somehow you're gonna avoid the truth. And instead what happened is they ran into the truth of God's wrath, of God's judgment. And you see this in the New Testament. I mean, you see some of this language. This scary passages we don't wanna mess with. Ananias and Sapphira, what in the world is going on there? You read that? It's like, I don't know how to preach that, Jesus. First time youth group is mentioned, do you know that? Is when they're dragging Ananias and Sapphira out. You gotta read that, that's crazy. And then in 1 Corinthians, they're, they're celebrating communion together. But you know what's happened? All the rich people, because they don't have jobs, they're getting there early to the church service. You know about this? And Paul's like, listen, your church services are doing more damage than good. And so some of you are getting drunk during the day. And then the poor people, the working class, show up later and all the food's gone. And so you're, not, you're taking communion with a heart that's not being aware of what's going on. He's saying, you're bringing sickness into your life and judgment. And there's this passage in 1 Timothy, Timothy where it says, hey, we've handed these guys over to Satan. I don't know what that means, but it's not good. And you see that. And you know, we avoid that, don't we, as Christians? We're like, what is that stuff? I don't know how to deal with it. That's the discipline of God. Now, in your life, you don't know when God's directly disciplining. We just don't. So basically, Scripture says, just take everything. Just take it all as discipline. That God loves you. And if there's suffering in your life, it's not because God's punishing you for a specific sin. It could be. But use it as a response to say, God, I need you in my life. 
Where is their sin in my life? Where is their brokenness? You know, sometimes before we pray for somebody for, for healing, sometimes it's important to confess sin. Just because we want to be honest before God, it doesn't mean that God's punishing you for that specifically, but it's just to get our heart right towards the Father. See, God's discipline is loving, it is patient, but it is final. And so how should we, how should we respond to this? Watch this in verse 24 and 25. Jesus speaks to those who have been faithful, and he says, but to the rest of you who have not given over to this voice, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned from some of the deep things of Satan, I say to you, I do not lay on you any other burdens, only here's the only thing that's important, just hold fast, guys. Be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. Hold fast. And he says, the one who conquers, who keeps my words until the end, who stays true, who doesn't compromise, who isn't tolerant of her teaching, to him I will give authority, notice, over the nation. See, what were they afraid of, the authorities that are over them? Jesus says, I'm the son of God, I got eyes of burning fire, I got feet of burnished bronze, I have authority over all things, and if you are faithful to me, I will use you to judge the nations. That those that are criticizing you and condemning you, who are persecuting you, one day you're gonna sit in my glory and you're gonna, you're gonna be judge over the nations. He's preparing them for what's to come. And notice he will rule them with an iron rod. This is a reference to the, to the, the guilds of that time. As when earthen pots, so pottery, are broken into pieces, even as I myself receive authority from my Father. And it's a strange phrase, I'll give him the morning star. That could be a reference to Venus was known as the morning star. It could be a reference to Jesus. Again, a lot of these are cultural references in that time. We're not exactly sure what it what's referring to but he's saying i'm going to reward you i'm going to be with you i'm going to give you authority and then the final final thing is verse 29 he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit is saying the spirit is still speaking to his church and again let's go back to that storyline when you are afraid when you feel life is out of control that's when you really need to start listening to the voice of god in your life Start listening to the voice of God because there's a lot of pundits that want to use you and want to take that fear and they want to use it for themselves. And God never uses you in a way to manipulate you. He, he always loves you in a way that builds you up, even in your sin, right? It's amazing, amazing, the way that God loves us in my sin. I mean, I, in my ignorance, in my impatience, in my addictions, how does God deal with you he he constantly chases after you and his kindness right it starts to woo you back and sometimes it can take years it can take months and god slowly begins to woo you back because he his discipline and his love is for your benefit and you know you're under a false prophet or under false teaching because you're just exhausted all the time where does the power to live the christian life come from it comes from the spirit that dwells within us it comes from the holy spirit and so often as a pastor, you know, when I'm exhausted, it's like, man, what am I relying on? You know what I'm often relying on is the approval of man. Can I just be honest? Confess my sin. You can pray over me later. Um, that's, that's it for me. It's the approval of man. And that's a, that is a fuel and a drug. You know what I mean? When church is full and everybody loves you and you did a great job, pastor, and lives are changed and people are healed and sin is being confessed, like, yes. That's a deadly spirit. It's a deadly spirit because the approval of man, it's not going to love you back. When you fail it, it's going to condemn you. And all of us have something like that. 
And so when that fear comes in, that, that desire to control, what do you turn to? Let me give you two implications, and then we're going to celebrate communion. Two implications. One is to flee from worldliness, and two is to pursue holiness. And I know that's kind of churchy words, right? Flee from worldliness and pursue holiness. Now, fleeing from worldliness does not mean a self-righteous, angry heart. You know what I mean? Bodily, you're holy, but your heart's ugly. And, and fleeing from worldliness is not a condemning, critical, hey, these are Jezebels out here, spirit. That, that, that's, not, that's not fleeing from worldliness. No, that's a condemning spirit. You know, Jeff Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, says this. The sin of worldliness is a preoccupation with the things of this temporal life. It's accepting and going along with the views and practices of society around us without discerning if they're biblical, whether they come from God. And I believe that the key to our tendencies towards worldliness lies primarily in two words, just going along, just going along, just going along. We simply go along with the values and the practices of society. We become tolerant. It seduces us. We start to compromise. We compartmentalize. And eventually, you're under the authority of the Jezebel. We have to flee from worldliness. Where is there worldliness in your life? And worldliness is just, hey, I'm not surrendering this to God. I'm I'm not submitting it to God. And then to pursue holiness, which is a heart that purely loves God with both heart, soul, mind, and strength, body, actions, Everything is coming under the authority of Jesus Christ. You know, you know what discipleship, often I'll tell people, in discipleship, we're just submitting everything under the authority of Jesus. That's what we're doing right now. And someone will come to my office, you know, and they'll talk about their marriage, and I'll just say, hey, do you want to submit that under the authority of Jesus? I'm like, are you sure? Because when you do, submit something to the authority of Jesus, saying, Jesus, I'm going to obey you. You're my Lord. You're my master. I want what you want. And that, that's sometimes the first step is just to say, Jesus, you know, I'm in a hard spot. I want to surrender this. I want to submit this to you. I want you to lead me. We need to pursue holiness. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared. And notice the grace of God has come for what reason? To bring salvation to all people. And grace has come to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, godly life in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of our glorious Lord, our God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all the lawlessness and, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's grace has come to make you holy. Because see, his grace allows you to admit where you are. Adam, where are you? You know, the Spirit is saying today, I know your name's not Jason, but Jason, where are you? Where are you? What have you tolerated? And listen, if, if someone in here is struggling with addiction, there's hope. Jesus can break the power of addiction in your life. He can cancel God. The Holy Spirit loves to cancel lives. I love lies, not lives, lies. That's different. So many of us walk under the authority of lies, and you've just affirmed, and you've washed, you've washed yourself with it. Maybe you've gone through hardships and broken relationships, and you're like, you know, I'm worthless. I'm, it's never going to work out. That's the spirit of the accuser, and the Holy Spirit just wants to come in and bring freedom and restoration. Some of you are just tired because you're walking under the authority of lies. Would you just say, Holy Spirit, would you teach the truth? Would you show me the truth? 
And the Holy Spirit loves to take scripture and just make it alive. You know what I mean? You are worthy. You are loved. You have been set free. You will overcome. The Spirit of God loves to take the lies of the enemy and just destroy them. And with just a simple word, set you free. Church, are you willing to hear the voice of the Spirit? You know, after we celebrate communion, those of you that are on our prayer team, I'm going to ask you to come up here because I believe that God wants to set some people free this morning. If there's unrepentant sin in your life, the best thing you can do is just repent. If just repent. You know what repentance means? Hey, listen, I've been going this way. I want to go this way. That's all. And you know what God does? He renews you in that. Because you're admitting what is true. God, I'm not with you right now. I know I'm a child of God, but I'm living like an orphan. I'm not relying on the power of the Spirit. I'm giving myself over to sin and brokenness in this world. And I think it's going to bring comfort and hope, but it won't. It's condemning and killing me. And all I need to do is surrender that to the Lord and say, Father, would you come in and forgive me? And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with that, you're struggling under the lie of the enemy, or you're struggling in habitual sin, will you just come up and confess? And maybe you don't have to say what it is, but just say, listen, I'm struggling. Would you pray over me? Would you pray over me? Hey, if you didn't grab the the elements when we walked in, we're going to celebrate communion. And then after that, our worship team is going to continue to be up here. I invite all of you after the service. If you don't want to be prayed for, we're going to head out. And if you want to be prayed for this morning, this is the time to allow God to work in your life and to set you free. But let's, let's grab those communion elements. If you haven't grabbed them, there's some in the back. There's also some up front, and I I don't know how the Lord has used this message this morning or where he's speaking to you, but we want to spend a few moments just confirming what God has said in his presence and allowing that conviction that God has brought in and just saying, okay, Father, I want to surrender to you. I want to submit to you. Whatever I'm tolerating in my life, I want to turn over to you. And Father, I want to know you as you are. Not just as I've projected you to be, but as you truly are. A God of mercy, grace, and truth. A God of wrath, of deliverance. We want to surrender to the fullness of who he is. So let's spend a few moments just conversing with him and allowing him through the power of the Spirit to speak to his children. Let's meet him. free. I pray for those that feel captive that, Spirit, you would speak a word of truth over the lies that have enslaved. Father, even over the sin that wants to condemn us, it can no longer condemn us because it is finished on the cross and Christ has set us free from that condemnation. And where we are free in Christ, we are free indeed. Spirit, meet us here. Would you convict us? Move us towards a greater vision of who you are, of seeing the Father through the lens of Jesus. And as we see him, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another, to another as we gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Jesus, we want to gaze upon your beauty, your majesty, and your wonder so that the things of this world may fade in the light of your glory and grace. 
that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He gave thanks. He said, take and eat for this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us receive it together. After supper, he took a cup. He said this cup, it represents the new covenant, the relationship that has now been established in my blood. Let us receive it together.